Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm joined on Skype by my esteemed colleague, Neonatal. Neonatal, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's um, a bit of a shame. I'm starting to miss the uh, the old studio. It, yeah, look, it's not the same. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I still get to come in and um, obviously somebody's got to kind of hang out here and press a couple of buttons or beat a couple of panels as I <laughs> seem to do. Um, but it is, it's not the same. Um, certainly miss seeing the Sunday crew. Don't see, haven't seen Tim since February. <laughs> um, when were you last in here? Maybe it was uh, the uh, June show, was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was the, it was the, our little middle break from, from this whole pandemic when things starting to look a little bit brighter, a little bit sunnier. But- All right. The good old days. The good old day. <laughs> we got our hopes up. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, we're we're learning to live with it in some fashion. How are you holding up? Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm good. I um I think it's a bit of a weird experience for me being um you know still allowed to leave the house and on a daily basis and go to go to the hospital because it doesn't really feel like a stage for lockdown to me. I you know I still um lead a, a fairly normal life because um but i just can't go out on the weekends and yeah that's, um, right and okay but surely quite- once you're in the workplace you're noticing a difference there must be a kind of a vibe of stress and anxiety at the workplace that i mean i'm sure it's stressful at the best of times <laughs> but it must be another layer of it at the moment huh yeah, yeah, it's like you've got all your normal healthcare um, stresses and all, all the normal jobs that need to be done, and then you add on another layer of pandemic with another layer of PPE, um, and it all—it's all a little bit of a um, air of anxiety at the moment. But um, you know, there's only so much we can do, and we just take it day by day. What sort of uh, shifts are you doing at the moment? Uh, so it's a—I'm currently on a medical team, so it's. Um, Fairly nice hours compared to my my surgical team um, a few weeks previously. So the surgical teams can sometimes start about six thirty in the morning, and you know you might get out of there about six thirty in the evening. So I I used to get there before the sun rose and you know yeah. go home with the sunset. Um, but now it's a bit more uh, a, a bit more pleasant with a, maybe an eight thirty start or an eight <laughs> eight a.m. start and a five thirty finish five o'clock uh, finish. Okay, that's that's reasonable. Yeah, that's a normal work day. <laughs> you know, save lives for eight hours, still gives you eight hours rest afterwards. Yeah, I don't, just don't know how surgeons do it. <laughs> Good on you. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, PPE and healthcare workers uh, with Associate Professor Alicia Dennis uh, later on in the show. Um, um, people may have caught up with an article that was published in The Conversation talking about PPE. And um, there's some alarming numbers um, of healthcare workers who um, have you know, found themselves vulnerable. Um, just uh, neonatal, uh, there seems to be memes growing of doctors on wards doing TikTok dances. Uh, you, haven't, um, you haven't brushed off your dance steps, have you? No. No, I'm not sure anyone would ever want to see that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm in two minds about this. It's a, a, 
quite an innovative way to spread it, spread a few messages, and um, you know, get a a funny way of looking at the whole terrible things that we have to now do um, out to the public. But also, uh, I'm just not sure I could ever bring myself to to doing <laughs> doing a TikTok. There's uh, one, I think it was from um, Royal Melbourne, Melbourne, wasn't it? The, yeah, uh, they yeah. seem to be the repeat offenders here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> good on them, good on them. Whatever it takes to get the um, – I think we had a conversation as a team um, early on in the pandemic wondering if there was going to be a, a slip-slop-slap type equivalency mm. for the public health campaign. And I can't think that there has been, has there? No, no. It seems like the PPE um, – uh, almost tries to get there with, you know, putting your mask on, putting your goggles on, putting your gown on, putting your gloves on. But yeah. it just doesn't have the same ring yeah. as the lap. Yeah. We'll keep trying. Yeah, it's been um it's been good. I just uh, just by way of anecdote and by way of like sort of like connecting with some kind of positive note to the community around us. It's but I've been really impressed. I, I I went outside for groceries for the first time um, in about 14, about two weeks um, yesterday uh, or Friday, Friday. And I, I didn't see anyone not wearing a mask. It was really fabulous. And, and even within confined spaces of the local IGA, um, people were, you know, keeping, um, keeping distance. Is that your observation as well? Yeah, it's been great. I, um, I'm lucky enough to live close enough to the city that I went for a bike ride through um, Melbourne CBD yesterday. Yeah. And um, A, it was a ghost town, which was amazing to see. Like I was riding along roads that I never thought never thought I'd ever be able to ride along because I was too scared otherwise. Mm. Um, and B, the people that you did see all seem to be have a reason to be there. So lots of tradies um, yep. and essential workers. And just everyone was wearing a mask. It was great. It was just such a nice um, – pleasant vibe from everyone yeah 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 so if we're going to get this thing hit on the head then that's got to be the case and it's good to see it isn't it um i mentioned that we've got um associate professor alicia dennis coming in um and that'll be uh later on in the show around about uh 10 30 10 35 our first guest will be coming up very shortly it's christine craig who's the um president of the australian association of social workers um, who's talking to us on the back of recent news regarding um, the mental Medicare mental health uh, plan sessions and slight changes to those. Um, so we're really interested to hear what uh, an association of social workers has to say. I'm, I'm sure yeah. listeners like myself would have assumed that this healthcare plan um, is um, only almost, you know, almost singularly directed at um, psychologists and counsellors through Medicare. But um, there's a, a social work perspective that we're really keen to hear. Um, and that that will be coming up very, very shortly. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Joining us uh, on the phone, we're very lucky to have the uh, National President of AASW, the Australian Association of Social Workers, uh, the President Christine Craig. Good morning, Christine. Good morning, Kent. Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for making the time. Um, We caught... uh, uh, Word of um, a press release that you'd made in response to some changes to the mental health care plan. We'll come to those specific changes uh, in a moment. But 
I reckon a lot of our listeners will be really keen to know where social workers fit in with uh, mental health, uh, especially in regard to um, services provision. So perhaps we could just start. When we're talking about social workers, what, what is that workforce and what does it cover? Um, well, I mean, the beauty of social work is it covers so many domains of practice. So we're professionals that work, you know, in family violence, homelessness, income support, um, mental health, all over the place, drug and alcohol, you name it. So um, that's the first thing. The other thing is, to we have um, various accreditations with our, with our qualified and experienced social workers. So we have an accredited mental health social worker credential, and those social workers, of which there are, uh, around about 2,200 or more across Australia, um, they work in the Medicare rebate session, you know, in those Medicare rebate sessions as well. And we need to be careful of the language. You know, we often hear it being called medical subsidised psychologist sessions, but they're not. They're medical subsidised mental health sessions and they're serviced by professionals, including medical and mental health social workers. So our social workers in this space have the same expectations of service delivery, of quality outcomes, identical item descriptors, etc. Yeah, and and what are the work environments? I'm I'm sure there's uh, clinical practice, there's hospital based practice, there's private practice. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely, the, the entire gamut of practice. Yes. Yep. And so. Uh, this, let's let's talk about first of all uh, the changes. Most people uh, certainly listening to radiotherapy will be aware that the the default um, service provision for mental health care plans up to this point is a referral from the GP for up to ten sessions with a um, uh, if in order to get a Medicare rebate up to ten sessions within a twelve month period. Tell us about the changes uh, from your perspective. Well, from from our perspective, they don't go far enough. So from our perspective, we'd like to see it expanded to at-risk patients as well. So what we've called for in our submission, we'd like to look at a model that gives us up to 20 sessions for those at risk, so for some preventative work, and up to 40 sessions for those with a diagnosis. At the moment, you can't get a session unless you have a diagnosis. And we know, you know, we know the value of preventative um, mental health work. So that's what we've been calling for. Oh, Christine, that's um, would be a pretty amazing change seeing um, it increase from ten sessions to to forty sessions. Um, what uh, what benefit w- would the individual patients be seeing from such an, a high level of um, change to this to this Medicare Medicare scheme? Well, if you're talking about recovery, and you're talking about recovery from usually um, there's been some kind of trauma or some kind of trigger that that's um, triggered off this particular episode or this particular um, point in somebody's life. You're talking about recovery. Sometimes for a start with 10 sessions, let's say let's say family violence or childhood sexual abuse, you might get to eight sessions before you even start really talking about what's been going on. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of initial, initial almost mental health first aid to help somebody um, function in their life the way they need to function in their life before you even start to get to what's going on. What we want to do is what social work is really, really good at, and that is, um, you know, delving, delving down into, into what's been going on um, with somebody. So we want to work on validating and normalising their reactions to things. We want to work on their acts of resistance. We want to bring structural analysis into it and look at, 
look, look at, um, you know, the systems, the systemic discrimi- discrimination and some of those internalised monologues in their minds. It takes a lot more than 10 sessions. Recovery, real recovery, takes a lot more than 20 sessions in most cases. So at, at the moment, what are the patterns you're observing in terms of access to uh, these services with the sort of communities that you're working with or social workers are working with? Well, at the moment, with the pandemic, you mean? Yes, in particular, yep. Yeah, well, I mean, there's an increased, an increased, um, an increased need for these services. So there's, there's a lot going on, as you can imagine. I mean, not only do we have people that already had existing sort of mental ill health that are now feeling this heightened anxiety and fear around this, but we've got a lot of people... And this is, this is another thing we need to be thinking of in, in our society. Our national narrative, really, is... Um, you know, the heightened anxiety and uncertainty around the future is a really normal reaction to what's going on. You know, this reaction is not mental ill health to say it's normal, and we've got to make sure we don't lose the humanity in that. You know, there is loss and grief and uncertainty. There are interruptions to our connections. You know, for young people, there's that real fear about what does this mean for my future. Mm. For older Australians, you know, we've got that whole what happens if I get sick. You know, it's a normal reaction to a very abnormal event, and that needs to be said. You know, you're okay. You know, if you're sailing along without these feelings of of anxiety, of uncertainty and anxiety here, I'd be worried about that, to be to be perfectly truth, truthful. But, um, of course, we are seeing heightened anxiety across the board. We're seeing um, increases in suicide. We're seeing huge increases in family violence and family abuse, a lot of coercive control coming out. Um, yeah, so there is, there is an increased need across the board for people to be able to get access to, to some assistance. Now, Christine, if we just stay with changes that happened during the pandemic... I imagine that a lot of the sessions have now changed to telehealth sessions. Um, And this may be a bit more difficult for some people and a positive change for others. What do you think are some of the advantages and disadvantages of doing telehealth um, for mental health consults, um, specifically in um, these at-risk populations that you're so expertly dealing with? Well, I mean, but you're right, there are advantages and disadvantages. So the advantages are that it can open up access for people that may not have had that much access before. So rural, remote, regional, even though 40% of our accredited mental health social workers work in those spaces. But it has opened up that. And for some people, you know, walking into an agency um, face-to-face with someone, I think telehealth can be a really good introduction to that sort of practice, you know, if people are feeling fearful and anxious about that. On the other hand, though, we have people... We don't have equal access to the internet. We don't have equal access to um, to a lot of the software and hardware that we need. And we know there's a digital divide across Australia as well. Yeah. So could we just pick up on that, Christian? I think that's a really important point because, you know, we remind ourselves that social workers are... are very, very often dealing with the most marginal um, members of community. Um, and that often involves, you know, just material uh, poverty and therefore um, limited access to, to things like telehealth. How do social workers, uh, what sort of, uh, what, what, what are social workers doing with those sorts of communities who just don't even have access to the telehealth, even if telehealth would otherwise be a good idea? Well, I've got to say there are a lot of social workers that are still working on the front line like this, and I'd like to give a shout-out to them because we hear about our heroes in health, and there are heaps, you know, absolutely, but there are so many people working on the front line, so many social workers working on the front line with these marginalised communities, and that's 
something that we don't hear about at all. So, you know, that's, that's pretty heroic in these times. Yeah, that's a really good point, Christine. I, um, in a hospital, I work with social workers, um, you know, quite regularly, and they've always been um, somewhat of a, a personal hero to me because the, the things that, that, that social workers not only deal with but are able to organise for patients and the and the holistic care that they're able to provide, provide is just unbelievable. That's exactly right. And that's our point of difference to a lot of others that work in this space is that we take we take that value position, you know, we work through those lens of the, that lens of their social location and where they're at, you know, and, um, you know, often you don't get that in the mental health field from other professions. So where um, are your claims? Are they falling on deaf ears? Do you feel like COVID has got giving you some leverage that you wouldn't have otherwise have and maybe um, these um, claims for more support, a uh, greater number of sessions uh, and other resources, are they being heard? Look, I think they are being heard. I mean, our the ASASW, the Australian Association of Social Workers, our relationship with the health minister and the health minister's staff has been um, has been quite good. You know, steadily improving over the last two years, I have to say. And I think the health minister's starting to listen and starting to hear what it is that social workers can uniquely contribute in this space. Is the resistance? purely financial or is your reading that there's something else going on from a you know policy perspective oh look i think we're breaking through a culture of medical model only is best and we all know that's absolutely not true you know you need to you need to be validating people you need to be normalizing you need to have that structural analysis and work work for social change in that you know if you're working in a system that only pathologizes focuses on deficits and individual dysfunction, we are never going to get anywhere. You need a holistic approach to deal with mental health in this country. And I think, I'm hoping that that, you know, the ear, the ear of the minister and the minister's office, that that's slowly starting to come through. We need a change in our culture and the way we think about mental health. Yeah, here, here. Um, Christine, time is flying and we need to um, wrap it up. If people are looking for more information um, about the work of social workers, where would you point them? Um, definitely our website, so the AASW website, um, aasw.asn.au, and you can follow the AASW on Twitter and Facebook as well. How, how, how is the workforce at the moment? I'm sorry, I should have just asked that uh, a moment ago. Is the... I mean, you mentioned they're vulnerable as well, they're frontline. Um, is, Absolutely. Is, is, Absolutely. The, is the workforce holding up at the moment um, in, yeah, in, in just in numbers? Yeah, look, social workers, social workers lean in to this kind of work. So that's, that's one thing I would like to say. Yes, it's stressful. Yes, um, we're working with the most vulnerable populations in some of the most vulnerable conditions, you know. We are not um, medical experts on pandemics and we are not trained in with PPE the way so many others are to keep ourselves safe. I'm not saying it's not happening, but I'm just saying, you know, that's not our background. Um, but social workers do lean into this, kind of, this kind of crisis and disaster work. So, um, yeah, I don't know where we would be without them. And the recovery is going to be as bad. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an that's an important point. I, this story is far from um, far from over, and perhaps only just starting as far as um, services needs are concerned. Right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
Christine Craig, President of AASW, the Australian Association of Social Workers. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I think it's been really valuable to hear a social work perspective in times of pandemic and how it um, fits in with uh, mental health services. Really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Fantastic. I appreciate Thanks. the opportunity. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Bye. Christine. Bye-bye. We've just been listening to uh, Christine Craig, President of AASW, Australian Association of Social Workers, um, on the back of some changes afoot uh, with the mental health care plan rebate opportunities um, that um, uh, and, and, the, and the claim for even more. Hey, um, Neonatal, it, it, I think it was really useful for us to hear that you're working alongside social workers in the hospital, um, pretty much shoulder to shoulder, right? Yeah, yeah, they they social workers are amazing. They do a lot of the a lot of the work that um, you know doctors and 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 nurses and other healthcare practitioners practitioners just don't know how to do. Um, you know, organising uh, all of the additional needs for patients and and just making sure that that they truly are cared for in a way that um, is practical, you know, yeah. getting, getting them access to services that they can actually access or getting them home safely, just things, just little minutiae minutia details that are um, so important to yeah. a good healthcare experience. And no doubt a whole lot more, a lot um, unseen, I'm oh. sure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We're uh, turning our mind now to PPE, um, uh, basically the protective wear that healthcare workers um, on site and in practice uh, and so much more than that. But during the week, um, Associate Professor Alicia Dennis published an article in The Conversation addressing uh, some of the rising numbers and the issues uh, associated with healthcare workers um, and exposure to COVID. So we welcome Alicia Dennis on the phone right now. Hello, Alicia. To talk on your program. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Um, just before we get into it, um, we this. What are the numbers that I've just referred to um, going into? Uh, well, who who? Sorry, I'll start that again. What are the numbers of healthcare workers affected at the moment? Well, when we uh, wrote the piece for the conversation, the numbers were significantly uh, concerning. But as of yesterday, uh, 1,667 healthcare workers had infections and 998 of these were active cases. And probably this morning, this means that almost certainly there'll be a thousand, if not more, people who are healthcare workers with active COVID nineteen. Sorry, can you um, explain the difference there? What what are those num What are those different numbers representing again? So the first number of sixteen sixty seven healthcare workers. That's the cumulative number of healthcare ah, workers right. that have been infected. And right now we are very interested in the number of people with active disease because hmm. the people with active COVID nineteen are the ones that are at critical risk of deteriorating, getting sicker, ending up in hospital or in ICU. And it also means that they're. Uh, currently not working in the workplace. So yeah. almost certainly today there'll be a 1,000 healthcare workers with active COVID-19, which is a, a really distressingly high number. It's a significant percentage of overall active cases, right? It's one in eight 
people who have active cases in Victoria are healthcare workers, so that's about 13%. Goodness me, goodness me. Um, we've got a healthcare worker on the line, Skype, um, neonatal. How's it looking in your workplace? Um, look, I am in a, um, uh, on a ward that doesn't really have any COVID, um, which is quite, quite nice because um, it's quite an anxiety-driven uh, experience, I imagine, working directly with COVID patients. What I found was particularly interesting about um, the healthcare worker infection rates is the breakdown um, being skewed extremely heavily towards um, nurses and what I think was referred to as you know other healthcare workers, which I imagine would be a lot of aged care staff. Could you talk a bit, a little bit about that, Alicia? Yeah, Neonatal, thanks for bringing that up. It, it appears from the data that was uh, presented on Thursday that nurses uh, comprise about 43% of the active cases currently and overall uh, are about 39% of the cumulative cases. So this is, you know, a really high number. The other healthcare workers that you talked about, um, such as those in aged care, disability workers, pharmacists, dental professions, etc., they comprise about 51% of the active cases. So um, with respect to the nurses, uh, it's, it's likely that na- that number reflects their very close contact and um, continuous uh, over a period of time contact with, with COVID-19 patients. Uh, so uh, it, it is a very concerning number, um, very high absolute number of, of active cases in nurses, 346 cases uh, of active COVID-19. And we have to remember that that these healthcare workers are people that whose job it is to care for sick people, and now they are becoming sick. So it's 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 quite distressing uh, the number of, of people that are affected, and all their contacts and their family possibly. So um, we really need to start looking at some of the root causes for this, and really start to um, be really alert everyone to this uh, major issue. It's significant and has been significant overseas and now we are seeing the same pattern of um, of people getting sick in Australia as well. Alicia, you know, PPE is one of a number of uh, things that has entered into the general public's vernacular and vocabulary um, over this COVID period of time. And, there, and I think from a general public point of view, there's an assumption that um, all healthcare workers are appropriately equipped to be uh, in environments where they might be exposed. How much do we know um, about these active cases um, coming in contact without adequate protection compared to, say, misuse of adequate protection or, or no um, adequate protection at all? Okay, so I'll, I'll just sort of put the question into a bit of a, a framework, if, that, if that's okay. Go for it, yeah. Um, yeah, one of the reasons that um, Jane Whitelaw and I wrote the piece for the conversation was to really explain to, to people what PPE means, because I think there's been this assumption that when people uh, speak on television or talk on the radio, that kind of thing, when they talk about PPE, uh, it, they they tend to have it mean safe protection for healthcare workers. And what Jane and I tried to do was break down what PPE actually means. Mm. So there are three levels of PPE, uh, and the highest level of PPE is one that protects against airborne precautions or things, viruses, for example, that may be able to be spread in the air. And so um, the assumption that 
all healthcare workers are given this higher level of protection or highest level protection um, is, is incorrect. When, when we talk about PPE, we need to say what level of PPE the healthcare worker has. And to answer your question about how many active cases in healthcare workers are due to or contributed to by uh, lower level PPE, we can't actually say that yet. We don't know uh, that level of granularity with regard to the data. But what we're asking for is um, some transparency around the level of availability of airborne PPE that meets Australian standards and is fit tested, and also um, a, a almost like a national registry of healthcare workers who get this infection, so we can drill down and work out what the component of occupational exposure was to their getting infected with, uh, with, the, with the virus causing COVID-19. Now, um, the whole issue of fit testing is one that's come into the um, a more, more public view recently. Uh, I've heard a lot of anecdotal, anecdotal reports um, of clinicians not being fit tested for you know, N95 masks. Um, is this should should this be standard? Has it been standard? What is and specifically what is fit testing? So fit testing is a test that the healthcare worker, or or in fact any worker in any industry that is required to wear a respirator mask, it's a test that they undergo to determine whether the mask fits them correctly and whether there's any leaks around the mask. Because as you can imagine, if you're going into an environment where there's say asbestos or toxic gas or into a laboratory where there's toxic chemicals that release odours, you want to have a respirator mask that fits you really well so you don't inhale any of those agents. Same with viruses. You want to have a mask that fits you correctly. So the fit testing ensures that the mask that you are wearing fits you correctly and doesn't have any leaks. And some of the N95 masks, which um, a lot of people will have heard about, some of these masks don't fit the it fit a lot of people. For example, if you're a female with a different shaped face to, to men, then perhaps the larger N95 masks don't actually fit your face correctly. So there's no face is the same shape as we can all appreciate. So fit testing is very important to determine that the mask, respirator mask that you're wearing is as safe as possible. It's not currently done in, uh, mandated to be done in Victorian hospitals. However, if you go to a state like South Australia, all healthcare workers starting in a hospital do have fit testing as a mandatory requirement. So we expect that uh, the, the mask we wear is safe and in order to assure, ensure that, we do need fit testing. Alicia, uh, the other uh, language that we're hearing is this idea of precautionary principle um, in the context of PPE. What, what is precautionary principle referring to and, you know, what's the extent there's evidence that, um, you know, our N95s are actually uh, playing an important role, a big role, a significant role? So when we talk about the precautionary principle, we're really adopting a more workplace occupational health and safety safety model rather than a medical model of finding randomised controlled trials to prove that one uh, intervention is better than another. And this precautionary principle or workplace safety principle is used in a lot of other industries. And what we need is really that principle to be applied above all others to protect healthcare workers. And that is the principle of 
hazard control. And we use this uh, framework of a hierarchy of hazard control. So you first, if you've got a hazard in the workplace, you eliminate it. If you can't eliminate it, you substitute something for it. And then the last line of defence after engineering controls and administrative controls is the PPE. So that's our last line of defence. And that's where the three levels of PPE come in. Right, right, I see. Um, Sorry, um, Neonatal, did I just cut you off there? No, no. um, uh, Alicia, um, we've been um, focusing on the workplace of the healthcare workers, but um, it's probably safe to assume that some of the healthcare workers, at the very least, have come into contact with COVID out in the community. Um, Have you got any uh, insight into that um, aspect? Definitely, there will have been healthcare workers like any other workers that have come in contact in the community. Uh, We don't have a breakdown of the number or proportion of healthcare workers that have uh, contracted COVID-19 that way. Uh, But even if there's just a very, very small number of healthcare workers who have acquired it through occupational exposure, say we've now got a 1,000 active cases, if only... 5 to 10% of those people, and it's probably more, have mm. acquired it in the workplace. That's a significant proportion, significant number of workers, healthcare workers who have, who have contracted in the workplace. And it, it, it leads me um, to reflect on the WorkSafe commercial from 2010. I, I don't know whether you guys remember it, but it had the Dido song in the background here with me, and it's a very sort of evocative, <laughs> beautiful um, commercial. But I, I, I listened to that in the last 24 hours, and I was actually quite moved by, by it. You know, these are people getting uh, sick from COVID-19, possibly in the, you know, from workplace exposure, and it is very, uh, very concerning uh, then perhaps we, you know, we do need to um, work very, very hard to minimise that exposure in the workplace. That's a really good point, Alicia. Um, with the the WorkSafe ad, it it brings to mind um, the question of compensation and uh, support for workers. You know, is there anything being done for healthcare workers who are being infected whilst in the workplace? Well, that's probably a bit out of the scope of um, what I'm able to talk about but but what I can say is definitely hospitals are providing a lot of support for um, healthcare workers particularly those um, well all of them but um, I know from first hand people that are going into quarantine because they've been exposed to uh, perhaps patients with COVID-19 inadvertently and there's a lot of support that's being provided you know daily phone calls uh, communications um, support networks set up within the hospitals to support healthcare workers. So I think this is a, you know, it's a new thing where we're dealing with here. You know, hospitals have predominantly um, focused very, very appropriately on patient safety and, mm. and obviously worker safety. But now this is a huge issue for work, workplace safety for the, the healthcare workers. And it, you know, it is, it does also, it does kind of require a paradigm shift in how we view things. So, um, I think you know. I think there is a lot of support out there uh, mm. for those workers. Yes, Alicia. I imagine um, some of our audience, and to a certain extent, me, not being um, a medical practitioner or professional, um, one of the queries that I have is that while there's no doubt that COVID and a pandemic is extraordinary, you know, once in a century, I guess is the way to phrase it. Um, nevertheless, we've had infectious diseases wards in hospitals for a long, long time, and and there's a 
you know, from you know, the, there may be a naive presumption, but a presumption nonetheless that um, the only difference between uh, a, a time of crisis uh, with regard to infectious diseases um, is the scale and the urgency, not necessarily the technology. You know, the PPE itself. What am I missing when I think of it in that way? What is what has COVID revealed about our understanding of PPE in hospital settings more broadly? I don't think you've missed anything, actually. We we have been uh, dealing with significant infectious diseases for a very long time. I mean, SARS, or SARS-1, if we like to think about SARS-1, and this is SARS-2. SARS-1 uh, became evident in 2003, uh, and also MERS, the Middle East uh, Respiratory Syndrome. And we have had outbreak. We have seen and observed outbreaks in other areas of the world. I think, you know, there is a little bit of a component of we need to remember those basic hygiene skills, I suppose, you know, hand washing. I mean, it seems ridiculous to talk about hand washing, but we we do need to focus on that hand washing, physical distancing, um, covering your face if you, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a, a virus or something. So, and we used to have you know, infectious disease of hospitals. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've moved so far to the other end of... Um, it, uh, that perhaps we've forgotten some of these really basic things. Um, for example, I worked in South Africa for a little while doing research, and I was really struck by the fact that when I was doing the research studies on the patients, I was doing uh, ultrasound heart studies... And I was in outpatient rooms and the windows were wide open and we got this actually beautiful breeze flowing through. And I said to the person I was working with, why why, why are the windows open everywhere? And he said, well, you know, that's a way to, you know, sort of ventilate the hospital appropriately. And I went, oh, oh, okay. I just wore extra clothes for for the rest of my time there. But, you know, and I'm not advocating that we open all the windows in hospitals, but I think ventilation... Uh, those type of things, uh, you know, if you fo- we need to focus on, you know, getting back to basics as well as all these other important things in the in the hazard control model. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it um, all of this talk about PPE and COVID has certainly um, exposed my own personal ignorance in in the levels of PPE and the levels that I should be taking to. Uh, protect myself against different diseases. Like I certainly, um, I'm quite new to the, the whole healthcare profession, but I, I was unaware of the different levels of PPE. And in preparing for the show, I asked a couple of um, more senior colleagues about if they knew about the levels and none of them really knew um, of the different level one, level two, level three um, requirements of PPE. And I think that, I don't know if it's a, you know, something that's just kind of escapes the general healthcare profession and is more focused on the uh, the people who are doing dealing with infectious diseases on a daily basis or if it's something that um, needs to be... And, like, if so, uh, it may need to be more heavily focused on in the future and included in curriculum. You know, well, I think if there's anything good to come out of the pandemic and, you know, there's a lot of bad things, but if there's anything good to come out of it, I think there is... We have raised awareness of of the need for PPE at any level, and that that does include, you know, physical distancing, washing hands, being very careful with not going to work when you're unwell, to to not only the general community but also people in hospitals. And we can see that evidence just by looking at the influenza numbers for this year, which are really really low. The number of number of people right. being hospitalised for influenza. So. What we are doing is working and what we are doing at a community level 
and hopefully at a hospital level will work and we will get on top of this and come out with a with an increased um, you know vocabulary increased understanding of what we do need to do to remain healthy in the future i think Alicia, time has flown. We're going to need to wrap it up there, but really appreciate your time and drawing attention to this. I think um, people come, you know, some of those numbers that you've mentioned are certainly going to come to us as a surprise to many people. Indeed, the percentage of the overall numbers um, being healthcare workers is quite alarming in many respects. So thank you for bringing our attention to it. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to speak to you. We've been speaking with Alicia Dennis, uh, whose article can be found in The Conversation. If you just use your Google fingers to find uh, The Conversation, Alicia Dennis, um, uh, the article regarding PPE will be right there for you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, Neonatal, you still there? Yep, still here. It's um, really quite... When you, when you put those um, numbers together regarding healthcare workers um, dealing with um, uh, COVID, not just in the work practice, but actually the exposure and then the consequent infection, pretty startling, huh? Yeah, it's terrifying. It's it's something that's always been at the forefront of my mind. You know, I um, have gone long periods without visiting like my my parents or my family because of fear of bringing it home to them. And then there's also the fear of like I live in a share house of bringing bringing it home to to the people that I'm living with. It's always a it's uh, always a bit of a bit of a worry and been a constant anxiety at the front of my mind during this these past couple of months. Being in a share house, that must make you pretty vulnerable. Well, um, it's it is more more vulnerable to my housemates, unfortunately. Um, they're they're working from home at the moment, so one you know they're in marketing and engineering and things like that. So it's uh, it's more of an issue for them than it is for me, unfortunately, which makes me feel quite bad. <laughs> um, have you have you uh, begun? become aware of uh, any of your colleagues um, having to um, who have tested positive yeah yeah there, there's been there's been um, reports of um, certainly um, you know uh, doctors and nurses uh, becoming positive but there's been uh, some reports of different healthcare professional students being being um, reported as positive which is Awful, awful news, mm. that, and I hope they're getting the support that they need and recovering well. Yep. Hey, um, look, searching for some positive news. I think the positive news is our um, cousins across the ditch. Um, they look like I think if I've got my info right, I think if they go today without um, news of an of an in- transmission, that'll be a hundred days, um, and uh, I think that's the threshold to be able to say that they're free of it. That's just incredible. Like yeah. they've just done such an amazing job, and I'm so so pleased with them. But also just so incredibly jealous. <laughs> yeah. Seeing seeing Jacinta Ardern uh, posting uh, photos on social media where she's holding a keep cup or shaking someone's hand, <laughs> yeah. just rubbing it in. At yeah, this point. scenes from a different time. Hey, we've got to go. Uh, thanks heaps, Neonatal. 
Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks heaps to our guests, uh, President of AASW, Australian Association of Social Workers, Christina Craig, and Alicia Dennis from the University of Melbourne talking to us about a PPE. Um, stay, uh, keep your ears peered for all information coming up about radiotherapy. We're really going to need your support this year, as we do always, um, but you can imagine it's going to be a particular time this this year around catch up with uh, radiotherapy on instagram on um, twitter and on facebook in the meantime please take care look after yourselves and we'll see you uh, next sunday or be in your ears next sunday hi this is panel beta thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.